Praise the Lord, everyone. It pays to be instant in season and out. If you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Second Peter chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained, obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding and great promises, precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Besides this, give all diligence to your faith. Give all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things abide in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you. you may be seated. And if you will, please forgive me tonight for not having a time home. Uh, after having three neck surgeries, wearing a tie is becoming very painful as I get older. And every opportunity I have not to put one on, I don't wear it. So please don't be offended for the fact that I don't today. This passage of Scripture from Second Peter is, to me, one of the greatest passage of scriptures in the New Testament. I think it relates to all of us in ways that we would, we probably don't even realize or comprehend because of the fact that we don't understand its history and the knowledge of what was behind the writer and as he wrote it. Peter was not considered to be one of the most educated men of his day. Matter of fact, Peter did not speak the Greek language very well. He, he spoke it in, in ways that he actually made up words that didn't even exist. And he's writing to the church towards the end of his life, uh, this passage is probably written in the middle 60s, maybe 70 A.D., shortly before Peter's executed. After Pentecost, it appears that Peter somehow made his way to Rome and is considered to be the founder of the church that was in Rome. There, he is in contact or, or becomes acquainted with a gentleman by the name of Sylvanus, 
And when you read his first letter, you'll discover that he says, Thou Sylvanus, a faithful brother, unto you, I, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting, testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. So he lets us know in the first epistle that he didn't write it, that Sylvanus wrote it. It wasn't uncommon in that day for someone to actually speak something and then someone else actually pen what the person was saying. So Sylvanus became Peter's scribe. As a result, scholars want to argue that Second Peter and First Peter cannot be from the same person because of the styles. Second Peter is not even considered Koine Greek, which was actually the street language of their day. First Peter is considered classical Greek. It, it is the most eloquent of the Greek language and probably the most eloquent passage or epistle in the scripture in comparison to the language if you were able to read it from its original text. Peter is writing to the church and he's writing to every one of us about his life. If you read the introduction to his first epistle, it's slightly different than the second one. And the difference has to do with the way he introduces himself. He writes to the first or the first letter that's written to the church in general. It's called a general epistle because it was written to everyone. He begins by saying, uh, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. This one begins with a very unique description. It is Simon Peter. Now, we often don't really think about the importance of him using both names because Simon or Peter was not his original name. It was not the name his family gave him. It's the name Jesus gave him. And when Jesus met Simon, he says to Peter, Thou art Simon, but thou shalt be called Peter, which is a, the term is a rock, but it's not the rock that spoke of upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that's used speaks of a very small stone or pebble. Simon speaks of a reed, something that's easily swayed or when the wind blows, it leans in one direction. When the wind quits blowing, it changes back. And then if it blows from a different direction, it, it just depends on which way the wind's blowing as to which way it leans. That was his original name. And Jesus said, your name needs to be changed. Now, he changed his name, said, now, you're going to be called Peter, but you never find Jesus calling him by that name. He always calls him Simon or Simon Peter. They're always put together. He wasn't able to truly enjoy that name until after Pentecost. Peter, by his own words, lets us know that he is probably not the person you would want to look at and say, this is somebody you want to build your life after. Simon Peter was not a really stable person. He could be with the Jews what the Jews wanted him to be. 
He could be with the Gentiles, what the Gentiles wanted him to be. And he just seemed to change character and nature depending on who he was with. And we have a term in our world today that that talks about someone who changes colors with place or or events. They're chameleon. They have this ability to just change. And that wasn't a, a, a term of endearment. This is not something someone is saying that someone should be proud of. So when Peter writes this epistle, he says, I am Simon Peter. I want you to remember when you read this who I really am. I am the man who decided he was through. When things didn't go the way that he thought it should go, then he simply says, it's over. I'm through. And he threw in the towel. And he was so influential that he convinced six other apostles to leave as well. And they went home. They started their own lifestyle back. They started fishing again because Peter just thought it was over and nothing good is going to come after Jesus being crucified on the cross. So we might as well just give up and go home. And so Peter was probably the first backslider. He went home. And he didn't just go home by himself, but he influenced everybody else or the others to go with him. And Jesus has to go from Jerusalem to Galilee to get them out of the water, off the lake, and back doing what he had called them to do. Because Peter had started leading them in the wrong direction. So when Peter writes this, he said, you need to remember who I am. And if God can change me and help me, he can change anybody. If my life can become different as a result of this encounter with Jesus Christ, then your life can become just as different as my life has been. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't make me somebody special because I'm not anybody special. I'm just Simon Peter. I'm the one who is quick to react. When, when he declares to the Lord, I'll, I'll die for you, I'll go with you to death, and Jesus says to him, no, Peter, you will not do that before the, the, the uh, cock crows, the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. And Peter would say, no, Lord, I won't do that. I, I will stand by you. And then when he shows up and... uh he, he discovers that he's now in a position that he's got to become what he said. He chickened out. He denied the Lord. So when he writes this letter, he writes it to us, letting us know that this is an important event. You need to pay attention. I'm Simon Peter. I, I'm not the person that everybody would want to look up to. My life's been up. My life's been down. But but listen at Simon Peter. I, I just want to share with you a couple of things that, that can make your life better. First of all, he says, I want you to recognize that you have obtained, you have received like precious faith. And the word like precious is a word Peter made up. It's never found anywhere else in the Greek language. What he did 
was took two words from the Greek language and he put them together and made one word out of it. The first part of that word is esos and the second part is time. And what he says to them, because he is not skilled in writing in the Greek language, so he just wants to say something, you don't know how to say it, so he makes his own word up. I I want to remind you that we share a like precious faith. Esos literally is defined by measured by the same cup, from the same standard. When you get to God's house and you become part of God's family, he doesn't play favorite. He doesn't have favorite. He, he, he doesn't treat one differently than he treats the other. He treats us all with this incredible relationship where we all have the same ability to have the same relationship. It's like pressures, measured by the same cup with the same standard. You know, when you start talking about standards in the world today, it standards can change. So when we as Americans say that we have a standard inch, a standard foot, a standard yard, a standard cup, a standard gallon, quart, pint, all of the measurements that we use, the only way you can say it's standard is you have to control the atmosphere. The same cup that you put on a table when the room is 70 degrees and you put it on the table when it's 40 degrees has changed size because everything in our world changes with temperature. It expands when it's hot and it shrinks when it's cold. So to say I'm going to give you the same standard if you're not in the exact same condition and environment, then you can't call it a standard. So our standards are in a controlled environment in the Smithsonian Institute that defines how we measure things, and it's in a controlled environment that the perfect inch is at a perfect temperature. You change the temperature, the inch grows. You make it bigger or hotter, it gets bigger. You make it colder, it gets smaller. So it is controlled at a particular temperature so that that standard doesn't change. Well, the Holy Ghost, this relationship he gives us that you and I get to experience is standard. He's going to control the temperature, the atmosphere. I'm not getting more than you. You're not getting more than me. I don't get greater blessings than you get. You don't get better blessings than I get. What he gave to Apostle Paul, he gives to me. What he gave to Peter, he gives to me. What Mark or John or any of those experience, you and I get to experience the exact same relationship. Whatever God does, he has to repeat If he doesn't, he's changed. So if God does something one time, if you hear of God blessing someone in a unique way, it can't stay unique because he has to keep doing it or he's changed. So if God can transport a Stephen 
and put him in a chariot to meet or beside the road to meet the Ethiopian eunuch on his way home and, and recognize he's reading the scripture, that event can't be a one-time event because if it does, God's changed. And God's standards are measured like precious to all of us. It's measured equally to everyone by the same cup, by the same standard, by the same relationship. We all get to enjoy the exact same experience. Now, we may describe it differently, but the experience is no different. Just because I might say it felt like this, that's just my way of viewing it, but it's the, the experience is the same. If God healed, then he's obligated to heal again. If God has delivered, he's obligated to deliver again. Whatever he has done, he's obligated. Peter's reminding us, I want to remind you that this relationship we have with him is a unique relationship that you can't find anywhere else because you'll never go anywhere else in life where you're going to be treated the same by everybody. We humans have favorites. My grandkids say I have favorites. I try to argue that I don't, but their perception is I play favorites, but I don't want to play favorites, but I can't help it. Apparently what I do makes people think or my grandkids think that, that one of them that I like better than the other, but I don't see that, but that doesn't happen here. Now, all of us, Brother Kilgore used to do something at church every time he started to preach, or not maybe every time, but most time he started to service, he'd start by saying, has God been good to anybody here? Everybody remember that? Then what did he follow that up with? See, he asked that first question, has God been good to anybody here? And most people respond. His second question was, who's he been the best to? And everybody would start saying, yeah, it's me. See, we all think God likes me more than he does you, but the fact is he doesn't. But he doesn't mind me believing that. It's okay to have that kind of relationship with God that I think he thinks as much of me or more of me than he does anybody else. He enjoys us having that feeling about him. The psalmist actually defined it or put it in pen. He said, delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. I read a translation. I think it's an interpretation by Anderson that translated it like this. His translation of what the Hebrew phrase said was, let oneself be spoiled by Yahweh. Get close enough to God that you feel like he's spoiling you. And that's what he enjoys doing. He told us it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God doesn't struggle when he looks at you and decides whether he's going to bless you or not. Even when you've done something real dumb. He don't struggle with blessing you. Now, us humans have a problem with that because sometimes... We interpret that to mean that he don't have a problem with what I've been doing. But that's not true. God don't bless me because I'm good. 
God don't bless me because I perform. God doesn't bless me because I do certain things. God blesses me because I'm his kid and I carry his name. And as a child of God, his blessings have to do with the family, not my behavior or what I do. Now, I, I bless my grandchildren on a regular basis, and there are many times they irritate the fire out of me. But that doesn't keep me from blessing them. Why do I bless them? Because they're my grandkids. Now, do they deserve it? No. Does their behavior produce things that I should uh, to, to bless them because they, they've done certain things? No. I bless them simply because of who they are. And that's why God blesses you. And that's what Peter's trying to get us to understand. This relationship with him is an incredible relationship. It's not like any other one you'll find. He's going to treat us all just alike. Nobody's going to walk away better than somebody else. Now, I might feel that he thinks more of me than others, but I don't get a better relationship. It's like precious. It's measured by the same cup, and that cup doesn't change with atmosphere or condition. You'll get the same amount poured into your cup. You know, us Pentecostals, we, we say some things that are, I, I, I scratch my head sometimes and wonder, how in the world did we come up, where, where did that idea come from? Because we talk about getting filled back up. You're going to come to church and get a refilling? When did the Holy Ghost become a liquid? Isn't the Holy Ghost what produces or causes you to be born again and become a child of God? Ladies, when the kid's born, do you get a leg one day and an arm the next and the torso and then the foot and the hand and you, you snap it all together at some point? What happens? You get the whole kid at the same time, don't you? You're not going to get more of the Holy Ghost. God gave you everything you needed, measured by the same cup. You just need to learn how to use what you got. It's not needing more. It's learning how to use what God has given me the ability to use. And when I learn how to let Him respond through me, then my life changes. I become like Him. You see, Moses lets us know that if you get close enough to God, it changes your appearance. When you actually get in the presence of God and you get close enough to him, you start glowing. Because Israel had to make him put a veil on. When we, we, you, you shine too much, just put a veil on because we can't stand the look. You've been too close to God. The closer I get to him, the more I think like him and act like him. But my relationship with him is not defined by what I do or how I behave or, or what things I do in my life to earn what he gives me. What he gives me is not based upon anything I do. It's based upon the fact 
I'm his kid. He's my father, and he's the greatest father in all the world, and he's never had the authorities called on him for beating his kids up or, or, or wrecking their lives. Nobody's ever walked out of his presence with their head down and their face red because they've been shamed, embarrassed, or humiliated. God don't beat us up. He loves us unconditionally. So Peter said, we have been given like precious faith. Faith. Now, our idea of faith, the American, or the maybe it's the English, maybe Spanish doesn't have this idea of faith. Maybe it's our English language. Our idea of faith is, I believe, I believe, I believe, I got some faith. It's almost wishful thinking. If I convince myself strong enough, then I've got faith. How do you find what faith is? It's like precious faith. Well, the Greek word for faith is pestis, and our word's not even close to it. The Greek word for faith literally translates a conviction of the truth of something. I, I will give you a conviction of the truth of something. Now, let me ask you a question. What did God do for you that gave you a conviction that everything else he said is right? What one act can happen in your life to give you a conviction that everything else in his book is totally right? The Hebrew says that when he talks about now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, now faith is is the substance of things hoped for. Now faith is all uh, uh, of the, the data you could collect to prove that what he has said is a fact. It's evidence that can be produced in a court that will produce a verdict. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What's the evidence? Speaking in tongues. When you start speaking a language you have no control over, and medical science has proven that when you speak in tongues, you have no control over your vocal cords or the part of your brain that causes that to happen. So it's not you speaking, it's God speaking through you. And when you allow God to speak through you and you start speaking in His language, that one act, will prove nobody can convince you you didn't get it when you get it. No one can say the Holy Ghost is not real. Nobody can have any. It was only for the apostle. It's just a little bit too late to start arguing with me about that one because I've experienced it too many times. He gave me. The evidence necessary that I can walk into any court and say, no, you can, I don't care what you say. My experience is I, I've been there. It happened. I know when it happened and it happens on a regular basis in my life. And as a result of that, I have all of the evidence I need. That's the conviction I have that he is who he really says he is. When I received his spirit, 
it gave me all the conviction I need to, to experience and believe every part of his word. Because of the Holy Ghost, it is not difficult to believe Jonah was swallowed by a whale and didn't get it, eat up by stomach acid. If I can speak a language, my brain doesn't even know I'm speaking or can't even control then he's given me what I need. And Peter's saying, you don't look at me as a person. I'm the guy that messed everything up. You don't build your life after me. I'm unstable. I'm wishy-washy. I'm up one day. I'm down the next. I get sad. I get happy. I'm the guy that's just from here to there. And, and, And when you look at me, remember, if God can do this for me, he can do it for anybody. There's nobody in life that you can look at and say, well, wait a minute, you don't understand. It's like precious faith. Like precious. Grace and peace be multiplied. Where does grace and peace come from? It comes from like precious faith. Paul says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is what? Righteousness, peace, and joy. How? If you have the Holy Ghost, then righteousness, peace, and joy ought to be part of my life. It's in the Holy Ghost. Now, if you don't have the Holy Ghost, then the odds are you won't have peace and you won't have joy. You'll be chasing after happiness but you'll never discover what joy really is and, and what it is to understand what joy is really all about. See, joy is not based upon what's happening or what the conditions are. Joy is based upon the fact that I just know who I am. doesn't matter if it's a good day or a bad day. This is the day the Lord hath made. I will rejoice. It's been raining. Someone asked me to produce some sunshine when I walked in. Why am I not bringing it? I don't have control of the sunshine here, folks. But I can tell you this. It doesn't matter if the sun's shining or if it's raining or if the fog's so thick you can feel it. It doesn't matter. This is the day the Lord hath made. I will rejoice. Why? Because I know... And whom I believe and whom I've trusted my life to. And I know that he is able. He is able. He has the authority, the power to keep what I have entrusted into him. So just let life come. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if life throws bad things at me or or life causes this kind of chaos. You know, I understand Job real well. I understand how Job's friends showed up. I I understand that. One of my good friends who pastors a church not a long way from here, in a hospital room after a bad accident, I hear him. I wake up from 12 hours of being put to sleep, and, and I hear him say, James, your guardian angel wants a reassignment. I understand that. You us humans sometimes forget who we are 
It doesn't matter if it's a bad day or, 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 or junk happens. It's just life. Get your focus off of life and get your focus on who you're connected to. And, hey, I, I'm going to enjoy a new body. Now, some of you won't, but I will. <laughs> this one has high mileage on it. <laughs> I will enjoy that new body. Because that's what he's promised. And his this relationship I get to enjoy with him is defined by the fact that we all get to enjoy drinking from the same cup. It's not bigger for me and smaller for you. God's never looked at his kids and said, you need to go on a diet. You just drink too much, you eat too much, you you take up too much. God, mom used to, we'd go sit down at her table. When mom cooked, she cooked for the whole family whether they were there or not. Now, there's about 40 of us at that time that that would hang out at mom's house on Sunday. And and you'd drive by there any Sunday and and there might be 10 cars parked around the house or and there was not enough driveway, so we just parked up on the lawn. I mean, there were cars lined up all the way down both sides across the front in the driveway. And you'd walk in, and Mom had the meal prepared, and you'd sit down to eat. And when you got through, she would say, do you want anything else? Is there anything else you might like to have? Or, or, or could I fix something else that you'd like? That's God. God's, when we come here and enter his presence, he, he spreads out a table. But we act like we're, maybe I shouldn't say this, but we, we act like we don't belong to him. And we bring a sack lunch to a banquet. And, and, and we drag, you come to an altar and ask God to get rid of your problem. And when you get up, you take them home. You don't leave them at an altar. You just keep dragging them back and forth. Man, the, the, the flesh has fallen off the ball. Oh, you got some bag of bones. But we don't think we can exist without the problems. But you ever discover this relationship you have with him and who you are and who he is and that it's like precious. It belongs to all of us equally the same. There's nothing in life that we can't go through. It doesn't matter what life brings. I have the ability to conquer it, to go through it, and become better on the other side. See, the world you and I live in thinks that avoidance is the greatest victory of life. So we're going to make sure our kids never have a disease. So we're going to shoot them up with every kind of inoculation you can give them so to prevent them from having a disease. Because we don't want them having to struggle. The greatest victory in life is not to avoid a battle. The greatest victory in life is to fight it and win. Is to go right through what you're involved in and say, come on, bring it on. And when you get through to the other side... You now have etched in your spiritual being the ability to never be controlled by what you just fought and won. 
It's just like you fighting a disease. When you get through fighting that disease in your body is recorded all of the history that your body needs to know how to produce the correct antigens if it shows up again so that it won't wreck your life the second time. Fighting and winning is what makes us better people. It's overcoming. And I am convinced, folks, that spirituality is not defined by how much you pray or read the Bible or fast or speak in tongues. Spirituality is not defined by how many people you witness to. Spirituality is defined by how often you fight that flesh you live in and win. You won't be a spiritual person then you start to battle with this stuff you live in and don't let it wreck your relationship with God and cause you to think God don't know where you're at. He don't love you. He, he's not concerned anymore because that's what your flesh wants you to think. When you conquer your flesh, you remind it you don't live in the flesh anymore. I'm living in the spirit. And my father doesn't beat kids up and he doesn't wreck children's life and he doesn't destroy people. He helps them become better people. When you get to the cross, as I reminded you several months ago, he's not going to drag your past up. The cross is not about your sin or your failure or your worthlessness. The cross is about how valuable you are to him and how important you are to him and what he'll do to change your life and make your life better. So when you get to the cross, you will never be reminded of where you came from or how you got here. When you get to the cross, you're going to be reminded of the vessel of honor he created you to be and where he desires to take you and show you where he can take you. If you'll simply let him take you there. So an old man at the end of his life realizes, don't make me special. I'm not some special person you want to set up on a pedestal and, and say that, that he had this incredible relationship, but we can never reach it. No, my relationship it's just like yours. It's measured by the same cup, the same standard. And when, when you, ex, when, when you get a connection with who you are, then all of a sudden all this other stuff starts showing up according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. He's given us all things that pertain to life and Godliness. Life and godliness. He's given it. I don't have to find it. It's part of the package. If I let the Holy Ghost lead, reign, control, then I will start becoming more like Him. Now, I'll have to admit this battle with flesh is not an easy task. And the older I get, the harder that task is. You do not mellow with age. You don't become a better person the older you get. I am not kinder at 67 than I was at 21. I don't have more patience at 67 than I had at 21. I, 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 I'm not more long-suffering at 67 than I 
I, I'm, I'm not the person that I was back then. I, I was, I, I would let people, I was kind, compassionate. I, I wouldn't get in your face. I probably wouldn't say things to you, but my, my filter shrunk real short. And you do something dumb, I'm going to tell you how dumb it is. So I have to work at keeping this flesh under control because that's what makes me spiritual. That's what determines how successful I am, how much of me I've got controlled by the power that lives inside of me. And you, we want to look around and say, well, you know, he don't have as big of a struggle with it because God just empowers him. No, Peter said, no, 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 no. I've I've had more struggles than you've had. I've had more problems than you've had. When you look at me, you got to remember, I am Simon Peter. I'm a backslider that influenced six other men to backslide. And Jesus had to come and get me. I threw the towel in and said, I quit. It's over. Jesus found me and then rubbed my nose in my failure. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Simon, three times. The last time he didn't ask him to love him. Because at that point in Peter's life, he didn't have the Holy Ghost. And he couldn't become what he could be. Because he didn't have the regenerating power of God's Spirit living inside of him to give him the ability to become what Jesus knew he would be. So the first time he says, Jesus, you love me, that's agape. Second time he said, Peter, do you love me? Agape. Third time, see, Peter didn't answer, I love you. He didn't say agape. It appears Peter said, okay, I love you. But that's not what he said. He answered filio. Filio speaks of of, of brotherly kindness or a friendship love. He, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, I'm your friend. Peter, do you love me? I'm your friend. Third time, Jesus said, well, Peter, would you just be my friend? And Peter says, thou knowest all. You know I'll do that. I can't say those other things, but I can be your friend. Like precious faith. When you can't love him, he just says, if you'll be a friend for a while, I'll be a friend. I'll, I'll get down to your level. You don't have to come up to mine. I'll get down to where your level is. And when you let me become your friend, I can take you places that you've never been before. Why? Because it's like precious faith. It belongs equally to several people. We all get to enjoy the exact same relationship. All of us measured by the same cup, the same standard, no little eyes or big eyes, little views. No, no, no people on pedestals, no one who gets more than others. We can all enjoy it. But let me tell you, you will never enjoy one promise or one blessing of God that you don't know. So what you don't know about, you can never enjoy. But if you'll get your nose in the book and you'll find out what the blessings and promises are, every promise in the book 
is mine. That's the song we used to sing. Every chapter, every verse, every line. Because he don't change. He treats us all exactly the same. So when you read about me and think about me, think about who you really are talking about. I'm just the guy who really messed it up bad. I told Jesus I'd die for him and tried to cut the head off of the man who showed up. He cut his, pulled his sword out, swung out the priest's guard and took his ear off. Notice what Jesus did. By the way, Peter was left-handed. So if he took the right ear off of a man swinging left-handed, he was trying to take his head off, not his ear. If that man hadn't moved his head, Peter would have took his head off. Because he moved, he just got his ear and it fell on the ground. What did Jesus do? He picked that ear up. And he put it back on. And he healed the man. Why? Because the man needed healing? No. It had nothing to do with the man. It was to prevent Peter from ever being charged with trying to kill somebody. He destroyed the evidence that could ever been taken to a court of law that would have convicted Peter of attempted murder because he tried to cut his head off. His ears attached. Who's, what judge, what member of the Sanhedrin is he going to convince? Well, it was laying on the ground, but he put it back on. Where's the scar? There's not one. Well, how, you're telling me he, see, he destroyed all evidence so that nobody could be, he could never be prosecuted. If he did that for him, how many times has he prevented you from being destroyed by the world that's around you? In, in the middle of your failure and your mistakes, in the middle of your, your the things you've done that, that could have wrecked your life, he's prevented you. He's destroyed every ounce of evidence against you so that your enemy could never destroy you for whatever you've done. It's like precious. Like precious faith. Like precious. God didn't just give you enough to get by. He gave you everything you need to walk through life as victorious as you want to walk, to become whatever you want to become if you simply choose to do it. Like precious faith. Please stand. Would anybody here tonight like to worship him and respond to that like precious faith? (laughs) What an incredible Savior. Gracious Father, we worship you tonight, Jesus. I thank you for your incredible presence and spirit that we feel here today. I bless you today, Jesus. I bless you today, Jesus. You are worthy. Thank you for like precious faith. Thank you for making me feel like I'm, I'm your most special child. That, that you love me more than anyone else. Thank you 
for treating me just like you treated everybody else. Loving me when I don't even love you back. Be willing to just be my friend when I can't even commit to you that I can even love you. You'll, you'll become my friend just so you can take me to a love relationship. Thank you for covering my past so that an enemy cannot use it as a weapon to wreck or destroy my life. I worship you today, Jesus. I worship you today.